I think that's where a lot of the, the friction occurs between uh, designers and planners. The planners not really understanding or appreciating design, I think, sometimes. And the designers not understanding that as you go up in scale, uh, you lose control. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. Here today with Fritz Steiner, Dean of the University of Pennsylvania's Weizmann School of Design. Fritz joins us today to discuss his work in ecological planning and his new book, Mega Regions for America's Future. Fritz, welcome. Thank you, Charles. Thank you for joining us. You have a new book coming out next year with Bob Yarrow and Ming Yang on mega regions. Why is it that mega regions are, in your view, so urgent for America's future? Well, there is scale, a large scale, that certain challenges that we face can be best dress, addressed at, especially transportation systems and environmental systems. The mega regional scale is you know, larger than, than regions and cities and counties, so it enables uh, larger scale infrastructure projects and so on. In a, in a way, it, regions were, were one of the theoretical foundations of the New Deal. And we think mega regions is one of the theoretical foundations for the Green New Deal or whatever variation of the Green New Deal happens. Your work on the topic focuses on both uh, ecological systems as well as transportation infrastructure. Uh, do these mega regions also imply political structures? Yeah, they do. Uh, we we went through the literature. We we rested on thirteen mega regions, but then we. We kind of waffled a bit, and really the, the Northeast, which is sort of the, the original mega region, uh, there's an argument that could be made at it. There's really two mega regions. There's New York to, to Boston and a little bit north, and then New York to Washington, D.C., a little south. So um, we, we look at 13, and we've been working on a, a project for the U.S. Department of Transportation, the University of Texas at Austin, us at Penn, uh, Louisiana State University and Texas Southern University. So a lot of uh, what we get, in, what we focus on uh, and emphasize is transportation systems because um, that's what brought us together to do this book. And those transportation systems presumably would include uh, rail, high speed, or otherwise. Yeah, high speed rail, but also relooking at freight systems, uh, air systems, and so on. And once you start looking at, of course, at at transportation systems, you can't not look at environmental systems too, because, for example, the the, the kind of environmental destruction that that would occur, um, and how you plan routes and so on. One of the, the fascinating sort of high speed rail routes is the one from New York to Boston, uh, because you look at the existing rail line; it's all right along the coast, very beautiful. I mean. It's, Kind of a fun train ride, slow train ride, but a fun one. Uh, but of course, that that whole area is uh, threatened by sea level rise. So, a logical route would then be to go to Hartford and go for from Hartford over to Providence and then up to Boston. That would be faster. It would be great for especially Hartford. Uh, but then it, it crosses some uh, some very beautiful river valleys that are uh, have really rich farmland. Uh, but also uh, important nature value. So if for that high-speed line to happen, there are 
environmental issues that make it a necessity and then environmental issues that need to be avoided to get the route across. By invoking the mega region, you're referring to a progressive tradition in the U.S. and elsewhere uh, in which the region was desired as a framework for urbanization and urban growth. By looking at the region at a mega scale, are there differences beyond simply size that we should be aware of? That's a good question. There are cultural differences as well. And different regions, if we're just looking at the United States, because mega region, uh, several of the mega regions go into Mexico and also into Canada. Uh, the Great Lakes, for example, you can't really have the Great Lakes without the United States and Canada. So there are, there are very deep cultural differences. I remember one, one time when I was living in the Pacific Northwest, I had the great honor of meeting Tom McCall, the governor of uh, Oregon, who had um, you know, famously put it put together the land use system for Oregon. And um, so I, I, I asked him over breakfast, I said, Governor McCall, you know, why, why can Oregon and Washington do the kinds of things they do with environmental laws? And, you know, California and to the south, it's, it's quite a bit different. And he thought for a second, he said, well, you know, when people moved to the west, there was a fork in the road, and they moved, they, they went south to California to get rich quick, and they went north to the Pacific Northwest to live the good life. And it's kind of, I, I think there are those differences. And even when we look at California, uh, there's the, mega, the, the Northern California mega region and the, the Southern California mega region, and there are definitely cultural differences. It strikes me that so much of the growth of these mega regions, um, especially in the South and Sunbelt West, are driven by forms of uh, consumption economy and quality of life. To what extent do you see the mega region as a tool or an instrument for thinking through these larger demographic or population shifts? Well, it's, it's fundamental. Um, the, the, the four big or five big Sunbelt mega regions, the, the, the Sun Corridor in uh, Arizona, the Texas Triangle in Texas, the Gulf Coast from um, well, Galveston over to Florida, the Florida mega region, and then the uh, Piedmont, Atlanta, from Atlanta over to Charlotte to the, to the coast. The Really, I mean, uh, just turn on the news any day and what, what do we have? We have uh, heat, uh, lack of water. I mean, the Great Lakes look better and better when you start looking at the environmental aspects because of water uh, and heat. So... You know, the growth of the Sun Belt has been uh, the good weather and relatively cheap land. And, you know, those, that, those conditions are dramatically changing with climate change. So being able to look at a larger scale and what areas, what green areas, what, what can you do in terms of mitigation and adaptation to climate change? It, arguably, uh, the mega region is a great scale to, to address that. You described the Green New Deal and the idea of the region as a progressive category associated in the original New Deal. Um, in what way might we think of it as progressive? And do you see the mega region as an essential frame of reference for uh, the Green New Deal? Well, again, if we look back, one of the nice things uh, the Green New Deal has brought us is um, a rediscovery of the New Deal and uh, an understanding, that, first of all, that 
they didn't get everything right. And there were um, things like redlining and other uh, aspects of the, of the New Deal that uh, reinforced discrimination and um, a lot of other things. But the, the idea of region was very powerful, uh, obviously with the, the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, and there was sort of a foundation of, uh, of, of ideas that people like Benton Mackay and Lewis Mumford and even before them, John Wesley Powell and his weird and wonderful suggestion that we ought to just abandon Jefferson and, and settle the American West based on hydrology, which gosh, made so much sense. So the, all of those sort of fed the, and the New Deal, of course, wasn't just one thing. It was a lot of things uh, pieced together, some better than others. But the idea of thinking at a regional scale uh, certainly was advanced through the New Deal. And if responding to these times and issues like climate change, thinking at a larger than region scale, a mega region scale, is a way to address some of the some of the challenges that we face today and some of the challenges that the proponents of the Green New Deal have said that we need to address, like climate change and infrastructure. Given what you've had to say about cultural differences, um, it strikes me that this notion of 13 mega regions might allow us to think in a more specific way about you know, our federal system on the one hand uh, and the 50 individual states. Um, neither of those scales, the, the scale of the state or the scale of the federal government seem to be a measure through which to really think about these issues in the kind of granular detail that you're proposing. In the book, we look at how do we create things that are larger than MPOs and empower them uh, with the tools to plan transportation infrastructure and environmental systems at a scale that will make them work. It is enticing to imagine another bite at the big infrastructural projects of the 20th century uh, with a combination of federal resources and political commitment to a green economy, uh, but in which there might also be a kind of regional inflection point. Um, is that too strong a reading? Uh, could we imagine a transportation infrastructure uh, or network that was culturally or environmentally inflected to different regions of the country? Yes, but we have to be a little careful. I mean, if you look at the, the uh, New Deal, one of the problems with making it adaptable to different cultural regions was in the South, Jim Crow was reinforced. So I, I think that the tricky thing would be how do you acknowledge the cultural diversity, but at the same time, not reinforce past inequalities. I just finished reading Michael Horowitz's wonderful book, Spying on the South, in which he um, retraces uh, Olmsted's trip to the South and to Texas. And the cultural divides that Olmsted reported on back in the 1850s, Horowitz very capably shows still exists. And we have to sort of understand cultural differences, but we also have to be careful not to repeat the mistakes of the New Deal in terms of uh, reinforcing racism and, and uh, inequalities. You mentioned Olmsted's uh, travels in the South as a journalist, describing the conditions in which human beings were held in slavery as a part of the cotton economy. Uh, these were published as a series of commissioned essays over several years in the New York Daily Times uh, and then re 
printed uh, as a volume under the title Cotton Kingdom, just on the eve of the Civil War. Um, it's true what you say about the extent to which uh, cultural differences in our federal system have also uh, allowed for resistance to big projects, especially large infrastructural projects. Um, in that sense, I'm, I am interested in this tradition, uh, progressive, um, you know, tradition of the notion of regional governance. Um, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, for example, uh, decided to organize its municipal government at the scale of the county or the scale of the region. And in so doing, to try to align its political decision making uh, with its environmental systems. Um, uh, it, it, of course, it's difficult to imagine a political structure that follows that um, at a national scale. Um, but what might be um, other you know, institutional forms uh, required to, to manage the mega region? It probably will be a lot about partnerships. And it also depends on the nature of the mega region. There are some like Northern California, Southern California, the Texas Triangle and Florida that are all within one state. So one could imagine um, state enabling legislation that could, and to some extent with, with high-speed rail line, this is already occurring in both uh, California and in uh, Texas. In uh, the Gulf Coast, which crosses Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, uh, Georgia, Florida, or the Piedmont Atlantic or the Northeast or the Great Lakes, uh, the first level is sort of cooperation among the states and then, then beyond that. One of the interesting things during the pandemic is the, the governors in the Northeast started to cooperate. They started to cooperate around uh, testing, around supplies and so on. That's a, that's a very optimistic, that, that kind of cooperation that occurred among governors um, in, an, in a region, a mega region like the Northeast would be um, really essential. Yes, it's, it's a fantastic example to come out of the tragedy of the pandemic um, to see in the absence of federal leadership, um, individual governors and coalitions of states emerging to fill that vacuum. Can you imagine a scenario where we could engage in that kind of collaboration between states uh, without the extremity of the pandemic? Or do we have to wait for climate change to become that much of an extreme threat? Well, I think more and more it's being recognized as an extreme threat. It's just becoming, uh, certainly to the next generation, the younger generation of, of people, they, they, they get it, they, they see it in, in many ways, it's it's here. It isn't something that's going to occur in five or ten years. It's, you look at the, the number of hurricanes in the Gulf or typhoons in the in, in the Pacific or wildfires. You know the, the extreme heat. It's here. So we, we need to start. We need to start to um, respond immediately. The past several decades, uh, you've been among the most vocal and effective advocates for an ecologically informed planning practice. Most recently, you've launched the McCarg Center for Urbanism and Ecology at the Weizmann School. Tell us about that initiative and what you and your colleagues aspire to accomplish with the center. Well, uh, when, when I returned to Penn five years ago from the University of Texas at Austin, that was in 2016, and as Dean, Part of my, a big part of my job is raising uh, money to support students and faculty. And um, having been a dean for 15 years before, I realized that 
there, there were, there, I was going to get hit with a lot of requests from a lot of faculty and departments. And so I've developed a strategy of going to each department and saying, give me one thing for me to focus on. Uh, I will, I will, you know, try to raise support around that. And the, you know, the, the department I'm affiliations with both landscape architecture and city planning, but my first home at Penn was landscape architecture. That's the reason I came to Penn originally. So the, the 50th anniversary of uh, McCarg's book, Design with Nature, was just right around the corner. So, and I had already been sort of contacted by people in Glasgow and Shanghai and Melbourne about doing a design with nature something in, in, in Australia. Or I thought, well, the logical place to do something like that is at Penn. And we, we did have a big event and we did have um, a celebration. We had three exhibits and published a book, but it really to honor McCarg's legacy and really to, to think of what does it mean for the 21st century? Uh, my colleagues in landscape architecture and I thought that establishing um, a McCarg Center would enable us to sort of bring those ideas up to date. Uh, so that was a strategy of focusing on urbanism and ecology, trying to explore what does design with nature mean in the 21st century, and then use all the excitement around the 50th anniversary of design with nature to you know, create the, the foundation and, and an endowment and so on to uh, continue to do research. Something that McCarg and others of his generation didn't accomplish. A lot of um, faculty in architecture, landscape architecture, even city planning, uh, focused a lot on their on building their practices, and they were very successful in that. Unlike medicine and other disciplines, we we really didn't develop the the research infrastructure to continue to develop and refine ideas. So part of this was to, part of the establishment of the McCarg Center was to create a research center that continued to advance ideas around ecology and urbanization. Uh, the book you mentioned, Design with Nature Now from 2019, was uh, co-edited with your colleagues at Penn, Richard Weller, Karen McCloskey, and uh, Billy Fleming. Uh, and Fleming, uh, of course, is now uh, the inaugural director of the McCarg Center. It's interesting to hear you say um, that it is the, the research potential that you see as particularly important uh, moving forward. I know that uh, with Billy Fleming's uh, leadership, uh, your McCarg Center is engaged in a, a number of uh, research projects. Um, among those research projects, what, what would be the most significant initiatives uh, in your view? Well, Billy himself and, and another landscape architecture faculty member named Nick Pesner have focused on what what are the design implications of the Green New Deal? Richard Weller and, and Karen McCluskey have been looking at biodiversity and urbanization and its relationship to uh, biodiversity. Um, then uh, Sean Burkholder, a couple of the other faculty are looking at uh, representation and mapping and mo uh, monitoring of uh, ecosystems. And then there's a fourth area dealing with urbanization and the ecological impacts of that. So there's right now there's four, four uh, research areas that and they, they align with the faculty interest. So um, and then we provide support to higher students.
and so on to work with the faculty to move that those ideas forward. We would be remiss here without mentioning your own uh, particular intellectual formation. Um, you mentioned the constellation at Penn. Uh, you had the PhD in city and regional planning uh, from Penn. Uh, you have an honorary MPhil in human ecology. You've been a resident of the American Academy in Rome, also a fellow uh, at the American Academy in Rome in historic preservation. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, your original undergraduate degree was in uh, graphic design. That's an extraordinary range of uh, disciplinary commitments. It strikes me that you've been able over the course of your career to move across the divides between design and planning as well as uh, anyone that I know of. Um, am I correct in reading your background as a kind of polymath, um, you know, beginning in graphic design and then moving toward the scale of the city, um, having now emerged as among the most authoritative voices we have on ecologically informed planning practices? I started in design, graphic design. Um, uh, my, my uncle was um, an industrial designer for General Motors. He worked for Frigidaire. He invented the first ice maker. He, has a bunch of, he had a bunch of patents for the ice maker and the uh, egg holder. And um, he, um, he worked on the original Corvette uh, design too. Um, and I was, uh, I, I always was drawing. I was just a constant a kid who um, windows and um, drawing saved me from juvenile delinquency. And my uncle thought that, he, he thought I wasn't really good in three dimensions and I was kind of lousy in sculpture and, and I got kicked out of wood shop because I couldn't handle tools and stuff like that. So he, he said, you know, suggested that I love to paint and draw, but probably if I was going to make a living that I um, should go into to graphic design. And Cincinnati had a co-op program, so, or has a co-op program. So I went to work for a developer um, who was de developing a new town in, a, in outside of Dayton, Ohio, an idealistic developer. It was one of the HUD Title VII communities. And so I thought, well, this is, this is a more interesting, and, you know, there, and the civil rights movement was occurring, the anti-war movement was occurring, the environmental movement was occurring. And, you know, the prospect of doing airport men's room graphics the rest of my life was, was, um, it didn't see it didn't seem as interesting as the time. So when I came back to after a co-op session uh, working for this developer, it was the first Earth Day, and and I was one of the organizers in the first Earth Day. And I uh, my one of my jobs was to organize the book fair. And in those days, it's hard to believe now, but there were you could put all, almost all the books about the environment on one table. And so there was um, Rachel Carson, um, Aldo Leopold, uh, Ralph Nader um, at that time, uh, Barry Commoner. And then there was this magical square book called Design with Nature. And I was, I was a design student, so I picked it up and I, I, I looked on the back and there was this incredible image of the whole earth. And I started to read it and uh, decided, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Penn and be and study uh, landscape architecture and regional planning. Hundreds and hundreds of other people had a similar awakening. 
there's there is something about my design background and uh, that I, I I often you know designers um, often argue that you can that design is transferable across scale and that's always bothered me a little bit or, or because going back to being a graphic designer you have a page and you control that page pretty much what's on it of course there are other people involved or if I'm a product designer if I work for Warby Parker and and I have glasses to design I, I work with the people in marketing but I control that but as you go up in scale you have to um, you know my daughter's a landscape architect and like many parents we said can you design our garden for us and and she indulged us and did and ex except for me wanting a dogwood tree in a specific place she pretty much controlled everything but when you when you go beyond a garden or beyond an object and you design a house if you're an architect and you design a house it, it gets more complex um you have a client to deal with but if you did do another building uh, but then you start to do urban design or planning and i think that's where a lot of the the friction occurs between uh, designers and planners the planners not really understanding or appreciating design i think sometimes and the designers not understanding that as you go up in scale uh, you lose control and certainly when you you go to the region or a mega region scale um, you know ben mckay and Lewis Mumford had some really good ideas that, that got implemented at a regional scale. Uh, but it, it really becomes, first of all, it's more complex ecologically. It's more complex culturally and politically. And there's just many more people involved, many more types of people involved. So it's something that, you know, my design background, when people talk about going across scales, I get a little nervous about because I think you, you really have to adapt your skill set to different different scales. Your alma mater, the University of Cincinnati, has a remarkable uh, graphic design program with quite a history. Um, it was among the earliest schools in the country to use the term design uh, as a framework um, as opposed to uh, architecture and the fine arts. Um, uh, Cincinnati has produced an extraordinary history of designers, including you know, Michael Beirut, among others. Um, so you were in a very interesting place to begin with, uh, especially with your cultural and familial experience about design and industrial design and its role. So the mega region certainly does propose a series of challenges. Uh, the McKays and the Mumfords and perhaps even McCarg uh, were not so relatively burdened by the need to talk to civilians. Um, of course, many of the failures of modern planning uh, stemmed from this notion of the, uh, the expert in the white lab coat applying the best available knowledge um, irrespective of the consent of the citizenry. To what extent have we in the planning and design disciplines uh, internalized or learned from those failures? Um, and do you feel that we have the mechanisms for engaging with publics beyond uh, markets or through uh, purely political processes? Uh, are you optimistic about how we engage with citizens in a conversation about the mega region in which they might be implicated? Well, I think engaging people is obviously really essential. Uh, listening, is, is really essential. But it's also when you're brought in, uh, I, and I agree, the modernist person in a lab coat and treating is a mistake. One of the 
well, you, you will probably appreciate this. One of the um, more ironic and funny talks I've ever heard in my life was Andrus Dewani uh, addressing uh, the American, the annual meeting of the Arizona American Planning Association. And uh, Dewani laid into the planners saying, you once had a great history, uh, but you've become glorified secretaries. Uh, you just go to meetings and take notes and think that that's wisdom. Now, Dewani is sort of on, on, on one side, I think his other sort of new urbanist colleagues like Peter Calthorpe, who's much more attuned to public participation and much more aware and understanding of ecology. But there's a balancing. I mean, if we're brought in, um, you know, we are more than a potted plant. We need to bring, but I think part of that is not only listening, but also just being open with people. I, I've often thought of public participation as a little bit like being a jazz musician. You go in, you have a score, but then you improvise. Uh, you improvise based on the room, on the situation, and you know you either gain trust or not. As an advocate for ecologically informed planning practice over the course of your career, you've been um, advocating for the role of science, uh, the role of uh, uh, data or uh, evidence to inform the work of designers and planners. Um, and where do you see the state of that project, the relationship between uh, science and uh, design today? Well, we were being a bit critical of modernism, but one of the legacies, better legacies of, of modernism is not, if we get beyond the international style and the style of modernism, uh, and McCarg was very critical of modernist, a modernist aesthetic, but there was also the modernist idea that knowledge could inform decision-making and make lives better for people. And that may seem a little quaint these days, but I think, and another thing that McCarg did with his work is he had this awareness that ecological science, environmental science was dynamic and was changing. So his strategy was always to engage uh, local environmental scientists and to try to use the best existing data. Uh, so all I, I think part of our challenge is, is trying to use the best information we have, but also understand that science is, is like design is dynamic and is changing. And ideas in ecology like stable state and, and balance and so on are, are all gone. And, and you know, now we're looking at chaos and, and complexity. And so part of um, the challenge is sort of under, is not to get stuck in a quote unquote scientific solution, but sort of understand and appreciate science. Um, and certainly, you know, it's done a lot to improve our lives. Um, and, and I think for design, designers and planners in the United States, the reason why we exist is to put, protect public health, safety and welfare. That's the legal justification. You can't get a license for, as an architect or a landscape architect. You can't make a plan as a planner unless you're protecting public uh, health, safety, and welfare. So how do you do that? I think, um, obviously, with health, safety, wealth, health and safety in particular, 
um, science provides a lot of the uh, guidance that we should use to inform our designs and plans. Otherwise, we should get our license taken away and our plans not approved. It's, it's evolving. Um, and I think designers are, there's been a, a lot of changes in attitude in design the last couple of years. And, and one of it is, is sort of the climate change and what that is forcing designers to think about how they build. And the other, of course, is social equity and justice. And um, I don't see those as separate. I see, see them as related. And uh, because if you look at um, climate change and what populations are most vulnerable to climate change, it's the same populations that was most um, vulnerable to COVID. It's the poor, it's um, the elderly. Uh, so um, right now, I think that there's there's been a big change um, in the design community is around um, appreciating uh, the need to design better with nature, uh, to design uh, with an ecological awareness. Um, there's something Charles Eames observed uh, that, that's been useful for me when, when I'm trying to bridge the gap between planners and, 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 uh, and designers. And the designers say, well, you guys just want to make a bunch of rules. Uh, you want to make a bunch of rules and then we can't be creative. And, and Charles Eames said something to the effect that good design is based on an understanding of constraints. And I think one thing ecology, uh, which Paul Sears called the subversive science, one thing ecology helps us, and, and what Aldo Leopold said, it helps us see the wounds of the world. If we understand the constraints that we have, it, it, it humbles us. Uh, and I think then we are designing and planning within that framework, which I think should coupled with working with the local people should make those designs and plans more successful, more sustainable. Part of what I hear you describing is uh, also a kind of empathy that designers may have for populations in a given situation. Uh, I mean, a, a big part of what you're referring to in terms of, you know, being licensed and mandated for you know, public health and safety is, is to not simply build in the floodplain, right? Um, I mean, to not put people at risk by virtue of what we know to be true, you know, professionally. Um, are there limits to the model of um, a fee for services professionals working in that context? Yeah, I, 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 there are. And for me, one of the great sort of opportunities in my life was when I um, got a Fulbright and went to uh, the Netherlands. And I realized that in the Netherlands, there, the way architecture and landscape architecture were practiced was very different in the sense that there are private agencies and private firms that do great work, but there are uh, at every level of government. And I mean, it's, designers are part of the, the public sector and they're also part of the not-for-profit sector in the Netherlands. So it I made me realize that um, there's, there were broader ways of practicing. I, I worked for the National Park Service for a while. And when I worked for them, 
I felt like I was working for a private firm because the mission, it felt like you were mission driven and you were there to further um, the idea of um, the National Park Service. Um, I helped write the Blackstone Heritage Corridor Act, which was the, the, the only time in my life where I wrote a draft plan and six months later, almost verbatim, it was adopted into law. Um, and it, it was, <laughs> it, they took out all the regulatory stuff, but, but otherwise it was pretty much uh, adopted. So, um, you know, I think great work can be done outside the fee-for-service uh, structure. Uh, I think medicine is another example of uh, a more complex practice ecostructure or ecosystem. Um, with with medicine, you have private practice, but you also have um, we also have research and um, and um, uh, public sector services, health services. Do you find that graduates of your programs, uh, architects, landscape architects, planners, are increasingly going into um, not-for-profit work or to the public sector these days? Yeah, yeah, yes, I do. And, and I, I saw it at Texas too. But here, it's interesting that you mentioned fine arts last because maybe the most dramatic example is our Monument Lab. Uh, and Monument Lab uh, was a project uh, from the fine arts department that, that bef before many others was questioning uh, what, what do we, what do we, who do we build monuments to? And of course, in the last uh, couple years, their work has taken off and, and g gained incredible significance. And it, it has influence uh, way beyond fine arts and, and uh, in architecture and preservation, city planning, landscape architecture as well. We see something similar here in Cambridge, uh, where increasingly our, our, our graduates are forming their own not-for-profit organizations and engaging in philanthropic or community-based practice. Uh, you know, we've had a couple of conversations in this series in which our guests have suggested that there may be echoes of the 1960s in which people see themselves as engaging in design through forms of public service. To some extent, but I, I, I go back to sort of a, a point I made earlier about looking at my own institution and looking at the Lou Kahn's and the Ed Bacon's, Ed Bacon may be a little bit of an exception to this, uh, the, the, the Ian McCarg's and the others who built very, well, they built successful practices, but didn't institutionalize, and, and they were great teachers as well, um, but they didn't develop the research infrastructure. So I think if we are to learn something from that moment in the 60s, the idealism of the 60s. It's, it's also, I, I think, building a, um, a more complete and complex academic um, enterprise. Fritz Steiner, thanks so very much for joining us. Well, thank you guys for asking. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.
www.edu.